I am Planta on the line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Renee Saragini Saklikar joins me again. She recently published a new book, the first in an epic fantasy series in verse, Brahma and the Beggar Boy. The series is called Thought J. Bap. The heart of this journey bears all patterns. Its uh, story is told in traditional poetry forms, such as blank verse in the sonnet, combined with news reportage and the science of climate change. I'll get Ms. Saklikar to tell us about this book, the central characters therein, especially Brahma, a locksmith who is brown and supported by her grandmother and the four aunties of the wishing well. I'll ask Renee about why her her main characters are female. As well, we'll talk about the various themes that are touched upon in the book. For example, the aunties foretell the future and teach survival skills, such as saving seeds and making soap. These are skills necessary in a world battling contagion and echo-catastrophes that are um, around the characters in the book in the future, not to mention the very near future. The book also touches on climate activism, gender and race politics, all timely subjects. I'll uh, talk to Renee about reading dystopian fiction in a time where a lot of it is around us. Renee Saragini Saklikar is a poet and lawyer. Her first book, Children of Air India, a book of poetry on the bombing of uh, Air India Flight 182, was critically acclaimed. Her poetry and essay collection with Dr. Mark Winston, Listening to the Bees, was also a critical success. She is an instructor for SFU and VCC and um, was the first poet laureate of the city of Surrey. Visit thecanadaproject.wordpress.com for more. This new book is published by Nightwood Editions. Please welcome back to the Plant Online Program, Renee Saragina Saklikar. Ms. Saklikar, good morning. Good morning, Joe. It's an honor to be here. Nice to talk to you. Um, the, the form of the book uh, I, I found fascinating. Um, it, it's highly readable, but, but for some people, they, they may find it um, um, something new altogether to, to read a story like this. H- how do you explain how to read the book to people? Well, I appreciate your questions, and thank you for um, you reading as much as you do, finding it readable. I did really want to combine um, great art, as great as I can make it, um, learning my craft uh, for these 10 years, and readability. Um, Hopefully a book like, if I may say, with, you know, not wanting to jinx myself with the muse, um, looking at the Odyssey, Emily Wilson's fabulous translation of Homer's Odyssey, and hopefully my epic, it's an epic, it's a narrative epic written in poetry and verse with lots of rhyme. Hopefully it'll be read for generations. We'll see. We'll see what the fates and the world have in store for books and for writers such as myself. Um, I don't really feel I write for right now, although it is eerie and surreal how much of my dystopian fantasy has sort of events have caught up with us, but I'm writing for for posterity. I am. I, I, I lay that down as a woman, uh, as a person writing, as a person of color, as a creative. Um, my hero, Brahma, the time-traveling locksmith, her motto is um, about good and evil, right? Mm. Let all evil die and let the good endure. And um, that's kind of what this book is all about in, in hopefully ways that aren't... Um, plugging into stereotypes about what heroes are and, you know, we don't need another hero is probably true. And she doesn't see herself that way. And she doesn't even know that she is one. She yeah. doesn't even know that she's semi-divine. Yeah. So. 
So, so Renee, the book is enjoyable to read, and and um, uh, I, I, I I see that when when I, I see the way that you use words, you use language. I mean, even in in supposed documents, say, or, or text that's prescriptive of sort. I mean, it, it's clever. Um, but the places that you 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 take us on in the book. Um, I didn't find as enjoyable. I mean, it, it, it sort of filled me with dread, um, yeah. considering that this is our future. Yeah. You know, and especially in the light of the year that we've had in, in this part of the world with the weather and, and um, mm. the ongoing pandemic. I mean, it, the book is, it didn't seem uh, as escapist as it might have been in another time or place. Yeah, well, it's definitely not intended to be escapist, although it is fantasy. And I find the world of genre fantasy so fascinating. There's so many sub-sub-genres. And mine is dystopian fantasy. You know, that's what it is. And um, I'm hoping, though, that people find hope in it if if they're reading it and enjoying it. And thank you for, for reading. Um, there's a lot of hope in it, you know. These are about survivors. These are about people who make things. These are about people who beat the odds. And some of them come to some very sad ends, but they are true, right? Always true to the original vision, and that's a big part of it. And um, that in times of trouble, real trouble, there will be a few good people. And this book is about that as well. And so the hope really is in people, isn't it? It's it's not in in, in corporations or uh, uh, dark consortiums or um, uh, objects or uh, machines. Um, it is people at the end of the day, isn't it? It is, and also in in the natural world and what mm. the natural world provides. And and um, will people? pay attention to what Mother Earth is saying, what the seasons are saying. So I think it's this interplay. The hope is in this unbelievable planet that gives us so much and we're kind of messing up. And that there are always, in any generation, um, we'll see if that lasts. And this book kind of pauses it at an, as an open question. Will there be enough good people to help with the future of the planet and the future survival of the species? And how will we interact with other species, and what is the role of, of humans. And so it circles back to the power of making. That is such a big part of the book. There are these aunties, um, the women of the wishing well. There's grandmother, the hero's grandmother, who um, is a matriarch who saves people and helps people and feeds people and saves seeds. And there's these seed savers. Mm-hmm. And language itself is a seed, and the rhyme and the beauty of the rhymes, um, where people come together in story, in language, and in making things, you know, and, and the, the aunties and the grandmother are always kind of role modeling, saving, making, repairing, the right of repair is this whole movement that I've been reading about that's influenced strands of the book Mm -hmm. about, um, we don't have to let things go obsolete and we should make things. Like, let's make things. You know, and what I make, I wish I could make a whole bunch of things. I wish I could quilt, like so many of the characters in my book, yeah. and I wish I could sew a little bit, but I tinker around the edges. But I make words. That's what I make. And I'm really interested in other makers and how um, cottage and craft industries can actually help out when things get really bad. So one of the things that I found really interesting as a poet, as I was you know, kind of trying to stay open to the poetic vision of what this is. And it's been a 10-year journey to get me to book one, and there's mm-hmm. 
I'm working on book two, um, is this idea of how we um, interact with objects. I thought it very interesting what you were saying about, well, salvation doesn't come from the consortium and from big bureaucratic structures and objects, but people who make useful and beautiful objects are really a thing in this book, um, whether they're swordsmiths or locksmiths like Brahma. She's a tradesperson. She's a craftsperson. She's a laborer. And the honor in labor and people who work with their hands. I'm not very good with my hands, so I, I was really interested in creating a hero and a group of people who beat the odds, who honor craft and labor. That, that's a big part of it, too. Yeah, they, these are things that we overlook as a society. And um, I think it, it, it's in a time of crisis, for example, that I think we realize um, the value of people showing up and doing the work that we otherwise wouldn't do. Yeah, filling the sandbags yeah. or putting um, um, putting themselves on the line to be volunteer nurses or nurse practitioners uh, to provide vaccines. Scientists who, against all odds, race to find um, medicines that can save and help. Um, this book is the opposite of anti-science. Um, yeah. So scientists and and people of color and the grandmas and the aunties and the makers and the resistors, they come together. Um, it is a new dark ages, um, but there's there's hope. So, but I don't want to sugarcoat it. I mean, it yeah. is what it is, yeah. right? It is a dystopian fantasy. Yeah. So, so um, I also read the book as a sort of cautionary tale. Mm-hmm. Um, the future doesn't look like a place that 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 one would say look forward to. Um, so, so why has it turned out the way it has? I mean, I can see um, the stuff we're doing now might have an influence. It mm-hmm. certainly does have an influence, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, why have we let it turn out that way, I guess? And, and uh, does that mean that there weren't enough good people? Yeah, I, this is such a good question. I think that's something each reader is going to have to think about as they hopefully commit to the series and, and read book two. I, I go deep with this very question in book two. You know, what is the good and what happens to good people in times of crisis? Uh, one of the characters we meet in book one is uh, Bartholomew, the lover of um, a woman named Abigail, yeah. who is herself an orphan and um, adopted by one of the great heroes of the book, Dr. Abigail Ellen Anderson, who happens to be born in the year 2020. And she rescues this orphan girl, Abigail, and adopts her as her daughter and gives her her first name, which is Abigail. So this handing down of names, mm-hmm. of rescuing of or- origin stories, it's a big part of the whole journey. And, yeah, it's about choices. What choices will we make? So one of the things... I never really thought about as I was writing it because the pandemic hadn't happened mm-hmm. until I was going deep in the final edits of this book. And I, I talk about this in the note to the reader in the back of the book. Um, I finished this book really for all intents and purposes on New Year's Eve, which I've always felt a very magical time. New Year's Eve 2020, that's mm. when the note to the reader is, is written. And so, you know, later on in the conversation, maybe I'll read just a little bit from that. But um, the idea is what choices are we going to make now and will they be the choices that will allow things to get better? This is a dystopian fantasy. It doesn't have to happen like this. And indeed, you know, in any fantasy, and it's, an, it's a poem. It's a big, long, huge poem with lots and lots of rhymes. You can, you know, hopefully remember bits yeah, of it. Yeah. And uh, it's about um, what choices are we going to make? And 
Um, one of the things I'm really interested in is this generation born in the year 2020, like this this character, Dr. Anderson. You know, and mm-hmm. the the people who were born in this year, when they look back, will they see that once we finally get fully vaccinated as close as we can, like once we get out of this, and we will, will we just rush back to just-in-time globalization with no focus on local manufacturing? Are we going to make all the same mistakes again? Maybe. Um, Are we going to seriously address climate change in ways that address climate justice? So this book is a lot about the people in the world, in our community locally and branching out, indigenous people and others Mm -hmm. who maybe don't have enough money to drive that excellent electric car, and, and full props to the people who do that. But this idea of where is climate change and accelerated climate change actually hitting? It's hitting poor people and indigenous people all over the world and people of color, the truck drivers and the farmers and the agrarians and the workers, the long-term care workers who have to take transit to get to people like my mom who's in long-term care. They understand climate justice. Um, I have a little side story. So Mm -hmm. I'm really interested in these ideas, and I've poured them into this whole saga. But the idea of climate justice is interesting. I attended online virtually a fantastic seminar sponsored by the American Ecological Magazine, Orion Magazine, and others, and and at Columbia University. It was all virtual. Mm -hmm. And it was focused on people of color writing in this this topic area, ecofiction, ecology, climate justice. And, you know, there are people from all over the world. It's Columbia University. It's a big deal. You know, it's kind of like an Ivy League-ish. Yeah. And the topic was very timely. It was during this pandemic. We're all doing it on Zoom. The number of commentators, many, many fine ones, many wonderful ones, but there was a significant percentage of people who were like, why are we talking about race? I signed up for a climate change. This is about climate and ecology. This is about the environment. Why are we talking about gender? Why are we talking about race? Why are we talking about equality? Why are we talking about labor? (laughs) I'm not kidding. I was stunned. And, you know, the community of people dealt with that, I thought, really well. But there was a significant percentage of people, and they identified as they were were profs, they were writers, they were creatives. These were not bad people. These were not January 6th revolt people. These were intelligent people, but they did not frame ecology and climate change in terms of global inequity and inequality and justice. And man, this book is going, um, take a look at some of this stuff. <laughs> yeah, I've always viewed talking about climate change, the climate emergency, if you will, some people refer to it now, as a privilege, if you will. Indeed. Um, if you're insulated or isolated from, from say, the harshness of it because you're wealthy or you don't have those concerns because you're in a particular business that... that um, uh, benefits from it, if you will. Uh, you don't have to talk about it. And um, if you're too busy trying to figure out your life, you, you um, don't have the time to talk about it, if you will. Uh, th- that's the thing, bringing up inequality. I was going to bring it up later, but um, I-, I went back to your book um, uh, the other night as I was preparing for a chat, just to, 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 to flip through it again and, and uh, remind myself of the book. Um, I thought about inequality a lot more than I did, say, the first time I read it, mm-hmm. um, because it certainly does not affect all of us equally. And um, that's the thing that I, I kept wondering about. I mean, um, 
why is it that th- th- there seems to be more people who, who don't do good mm-hmm. um, in life, yeah, is, especially in a time of crisis? Yeah, it's the human condition, and yet there are always those who sacrifice, and this fascinates me. I'm not very good at sacrifice. Anyone in my family will tell you that. <laughs> I, I like luxury, um, you know, and, and I like just being in my own little world, making my poems, and life has a way of knocking you about, doesn't it? And yeah. seeing what happens, particularly when times get really tough, I have such an interest and fascination with this idea of the people who stand up for others, the people who take on at great risk and no benefit to themselves the work to benefit others. And we've seen this time and time again in the last year and a half. And it's fascinated me. And I was already really involved in these thoughts. And along came the pandemic. And as I say, it's as if, you know, I'm looking over my shoulder and the world I'm imagining is starting to happen around me. I was deeply involved in the documents and literature of catastrophe. And so my characters are wearing masks, making masks, taking them off, not wearing them right. And all of a sudden, it's actually happening around me. And it is a bit frightening. It is a bit surreal, surreal. And it's also, I think, the role of the poet. That's what poets do, you know. We we kind of bridge past, present, and future, and certainly this book does that in a in a fantasy way with time travel, and the role of the environment and the seasons. You'll see that there are these portals, and the portals are how we enter seasons, and the seasons depend on our planet staying in balance and turning at its perfect tilt. The very first poem in the book, kind of you know the oracle. There's oracles in this book because it's an epic, there yeah. has to be oracles, there's magic. And the oracle is saying something about accelerated climate change and its effect on seasons, and that will come out much greater in, in book two. So one of the things I tried to do with this work, and again, I'm so honored. You read a lot of work. You meet a lot of writers. I'm so honored to have you as a reader. But one of the things I wanted to do um, was to create something that would inspire a kind of awe, that you would go back to it. It's like when you walk into a craftsperson's studio and you buy that piece of pottery or that painting or that woodwork, and you're just in awe at the hours and hours someone put into it and that act of generosity that, wow, someone made this with their own hands and they did so so thoughtfully and mindfully and they layered these patterns and colors and textures and ideas into this thing you can hold in your hand. And that is what I tried to do in this book. And full props to my publisher, Nightwood Editions, to the artist Nadina Tandy, local artist in Gibsons, that my publisher put me in touch with, whose fabulous art graces the cover of this book. Much gratitude to Top Shelf Creative, a local company, again through my publisher, who designed the book, who's Mm. designing the series. To the printers in this time of pandemic, the workers in the print shop who printed this book, you should see that we we all subscribe to this vision of a beautiful object made to last, made to be held in your hand. And that has deeply influenced me, the work of laborers and craftspeople and that sense of awe that you get. Wow, someone did this. They They thought about this so much and they've created something that I can now have. And I hope that transmits to the reader in this book. It's beautifully designed. I was going to say, from the French flaps to the embossing on the on the cover. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's um, uh, people are missing something if they don't get the actual book. I know some people read now on the screen. Yeah. 
um, but it, it is, is something it's it's nice to have and, and to, to refer to and and as I have over the last uh, few days um, the uh, the central characters Brahma um, you, you talked about the aunties Abigail of course um, they're female mm-hmm. uh, Brahma in particular is brown which you've alluded to yeah. Um, how important was it for you to focus the story on the on these central characters that, that are female? Mm-hmm. Well, it was a really big impetus for the work. It didn't start out that way. You know, as a poet, I try just to stay open enough and do the practice, right? Do a daily practice. So sometimes it doesn't work out that way. But try and write daily and stay open, learn the craft, read a lot, and let things come to me. And over a 10-year process... Um, these things have evolved. And what started to evolve as I tapped into reading fantasy genre, women like Octavia Butler has been a huge influence. And on my website, thoughtjbap.com, which stands for the series title, which is The Heart of This Journey Bears All Patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find a lot of information that I've put there for the readers. There's a code. If you buy the book and you get to the back, you'll see there's a secret code, and you tap in the secret code on the website, and you'll find all kinds of goodies. And I get into this, so I'll just share now a bit about the more I read and then recalled my childhood reading. Like, I loved big epics growing up. I had the great benefit of parents who introduced me to the Odyssey. I remember seeing an Italian version of the Odyssey uh, if you go to IMBD, you'll still find people who talk about it. I think Irene Pappas played Penelope in it. Mm. And I remember watching it as a child with my parents, and it had a huge impact. And, of course, the heroes are always guys, right? Yeah, yeah. They tend to be white men if you're looking at Western epics, but in the uh, Ramanya or other, the Mahabharata for, for Hindu um, epics or the Arabian Nights, um, which has a very complex history of a colonial read of it, but the yeah, the yeah. Arabic versions of the Arabian Nights, you know, it's it's ma- it's very man centered, right? Shahrazad fighting for her life by telling the caliph um, with his harem, he's keeping her alive, so she has to keep telling stories to stay alive. It's very male centered, and Aladdin with his lamp, you know, they're fabulous characters, and I love them, and I love Milton's Paradise Lost. But it's always the gaze of of the man, of Adam, you know, and and, and the male god and all that. So I wanted to switch that all up. Um, the we, we don't feel a lot of direct influence of the All-Mother, but the, the, this is a universe dictated by the All-Mother, and, and she's kind of mourning what the evil consortium, which is very male construct, this agro-industrial, all-concerning megacorporation, and it's very male-driven. There are some fabulous... Um, people, persons, uh, who happen to be male um, in the book, Mm -hmm. like Bartholomew, who will feature much more in book two, and the child that Bartholomew and Abigail have, Raphael, the book ends there, and I'm hoping people go, oh, what's Mm going to happen to Raphael? And book two really gets into that. So, yeah, I wanted a a hero who was brown, brave, and beautiful, you know? Um, All the movies I've ever seen that are epic. Um, I'm looking at my copy right now. I'm in my living room looking at my bookcase, you know, Dune. And I know there's been a big, wonderful movie made of Dune by that fabulous Gilles Villeneuve. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen it yet. But, you know, very male-driven, and I think um, Villeneuve changes that up. But um, I'm, I'm looking at the epics that I love, and it's very much male-centered, and I wanted to definitely change that up. Yeah. The other thing that I enjoyed as I was reading the book was... Um sort of the nods to familiar place names. 
um, if, if you're from this part of the world, especially, you know, when you, when you, you cite the Albion Ferry or Kingsway or Kerr Street or Barnston Island even, yeah. uh, these are just, just delightful to, to, to see in the book. Um, do you have fun uh, dropping these sort of lo- local nods, if you will, to what's local? So much fun. But, you know, it's my world building. It all comes out of, and thank you so much for noticing and kind of I hear delight in your voice and I delight back to you. Um, yeah, it's like, again, if if I was trying to resituate the epic and reclaim it from the great men, and, and I do adore them, I don't say that with disrespect, but, you know, yeah, the great right. white men kind of um, canon there, I wanted to bring in our world, East Vancouver, um, and I recognize, and my characters recognize they're settlers. This isn't their land. They've, they've, they've come in uninvited, and, and they, they reckon with that. But it's very much the point of view of a multicultural, multilingual settler class that's come here uninvited, and they're, they're making do, and they're living in these places. And the whole of Western North America figures in it, the whole sweep of it, and it's called Pacifica in my world building. And there's a lot of micro-local texture. I think of Peter Jackson in Lord of the Rings, another huge epic, and Tolkien, of course, the sort mm-hmm. of quote-unquote godfather of a certain type of epic fantasy, he and C.S. Lewis. And there's so much you can deconstruct about what's wrong with them, but they did do <laughs> fabulous work. Yeah. And, you know, they have this talent that I think Peter Jackson's a filmic series really tapped into where he goes from the macro to the micro. Dickens does that, and these are huge influences on me, as is Fiddler on the Roof. I am I am so in love with Fiddler on the Roof, and I have a book called Wonder of Wonders by Elisa Solomon that talks about the the provenance of, of how uh, Shalom Alekim wrote these stories of the Shetel in Eastern Europe. And these have really influenced me, these big epics that link the high and the mighty with the, 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 you know, the beggars, and it all interconnects. And so I wanted to go from the macro to the micro and put the reader through poetry and through verse, right? The sonnets, the blank verse, the ballads, the chants, the madrigals, the songs. It's all verse. It's all poetry. But put you through your senses into micro-locales that typically we don't see in an epic. So that was a big part of it. Thank you for noticing. Yeah. It, 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 oh, another part that, that um, didn't, uh, uh, I, I didn't enjoy, say, about the book was um, when I would see people dispute science, because we're seeing that on, on a large scale now, yeah. uh, a rapid scale, I should say. Because, I mean, people, throughout history there have always been people, the discrediting of scientists. Yeah. Um, but uh, we're seeing it sort of um, in... in uh, happen quite quickly now and and, and yep. more often um it's a troubling trend and it says something about our humanity um do you um have an idea about why so many people feel uh, fall for nonsense like that you know i don't and i think the book really searches that doesn't it you see scientists on the run you see scientists um in solidarity with resistors and seed savers these e- eco-people who tend to be, again, no disrespect to people who drive electric cars, but, you know, not of the moneyed class that can afford the right green choices. But these are people forced to make choices that they want. They care deeply about the environment, but they're workers, they're laborers, they're taking transit, they're they're chain-ganged by the consortium, they're transported, and they're still saving seeds. Um, There's this whole underground network of seed savers, and they're not anti-science. 
Um, the aunties are folklorists, and they have home remedies, and they know about making things and staying close to the ground. But they uh, they save Dr. Abigail Ellen Anderson because she's choosing to vaccinate children in the villages against the orders of consortium because consortium, you know, evil is a very interesting thing. So this book really tries to explore what is good and what is evil. And the consortium has run out of money because of climate change catastrophes and supply change and everything else. This is, this is a, a society, a civilization on the verge of collapse because of these bad choices that have been made. And so consortium doesn't willfully want to doom a whole class of underclass of beggar children to not be vaccinated, but they're making tough choices mm. about who gets the vaccination and who doesn't. And Dr. Abigail Anderson, born in the year 2020, disobeys them. And she ultimately pays the ultimate price, doesn't she? And yeah. she adopts this girl, Abigail. And it's through Abigail that you know we continue on. And, and she and Bartholomew then have this boy, Raphael. And so book two will get even deeper into this. What kinds of choices? Let all evil die and the good endure. It's both absolutist and it's subversively asking, well, when do we make the right decisions? So when I was putting the finishing touches on this book and going deep in the edit revision process with my editor, the fabulous Silas White from Nightwood Editions Mm -hmm. and his team, you know, January 6th was happening as I was sitting in front of my computer. You know, my husband was texting me, you know, look at what's happening at the U.S. Capitol. And I was watching it and had a profound effect on me. And this question that I talk about on the website, and I think all writers talk about, you'll hear Ray Bradbury say it, who's an influence. you hear many writers say this. What would happen if? Mm. So what would happen if Donald Trump did win? And um, the anti um science people and the QAnon people, that they actually had a, quite a bit of control. It could still happen. Look down south, right? Yeah. Um, what would happen if, and that's, I just kept going with that. The other thing I, I would love to point out, and thank you so much for asking these questions, is that I don't see this world I'm creating as an alternative. I see it as a parallel world that is existing alongside our world, right? So one of the many layers that I've embedded this this huge saga with that I'm fascinated, obsessed with, is the nature of time. And this is a thread through all my books, right? In my first book, we have this line in the Children of Air India book, time and its dimensions. And the way that trauma, in that case, the bombing of Air India Flight 182, but in this Mm -hmm. book, the catastrophe of climate change, catastrophe and trauma disrupt time. And so these portals that demarcate big narrative sections in the saga that are determined by the seasons, they are time portals, and that's where the time travel comes in. How do you uh, retain uh, a semblance of sanity or even optimism as you're, as you're writing about this place or this time? Yeah. It's it, espe- a... Especially the world around us is, is not um, altogether pleasant all the time. Um, well, um, you know what? It's, it's such a cliche, but it is absolutely true. It's about love. It's about the people who love enough to sacrifice and care. I live with someone like that. Mm. We all have people like that in our lives. And we see what they do and what they take on, and it is awe-inspiring. I really think it comes down to simple things. Bread making, somebody who makes bread and then shares it without being asked to. That is agape. That is the most profound love, right? Um, You know, I'm a person of faith, uh, and I interrogate that faith, and I, I question it all the time. But what do the children sing in, in, in 
in Brahman the Beggar Boy, you know, freedom fighter terrorist, who's right, who's wrong? We just want to eat. It's been so long. And the people who will take care of children, I think that's a bellwether. Like, what are we doing to children? And in our country, with with the whole indigenous saga, we have to, have to have a reckoning, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think it's a bellwether, a test, a canary in the coal mine. Like, how do we treat children in our society? And that is a big contemplation. And, and Brahma is um, semi-divine goddess who who will listen to the chants and pleadings of street children and beggars and you know, I was born in India, came to Canada as a young girl. I, I've really been influenced by what I've seen in India and other countries about street children and how they survive and who looks after them and who abuses them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've I probably asked you this before, Renee, um, about writing itself and, and, and poetry in, the, in this case. Um, it, it seems that um, as you're writing, it takes a life of its own. Uh, t- takes on a life of its own. I should say that takes a oh, life of its own. That is so true. Oh um, my goodness. What um, is there a way to explain this to the layperson, say, who doesn't write? Um, what that feeling is like when when you when you have an idea, say, you're struck by an idea, and it and it inspires, say, a book or two books, even or three or four, yeah. as the case might be. Because yeah. I think this series, we'll see. We'll just see what happens. I don't want to jinx myself. Yeah. Thank you for that question. I wish I had a straightforward answer. Um, if I'm in my zone and everything has gone well, good night's sleep and uh, space and time to write, for which I'm deeply, profoundly grateful, it, there is a sense that I'm time traveling, that I am in tune. Like if I'm writing sonnets, um, i got to write a lot of them to come up with one that I think is worthy of putting in my book and honoring the craft. I do get the sense of, wow, I am tilling the field of a 2,000 or a 1,000-year or 800-year practice. And I felt that about taking on the mantle of the epic. So I think on good days, and there are lots of bad days, but on good days, being gentle with oneself and being open with oneself and just writing, just picking up a pen and a piece of paper or tapping out something when you're walking. I, I do a lot of my composition when I walk, and I talk my lines of poetry into my phone, and then I come home when I get time, and sometimes I don't have time, and hopefully today, after this conversation, I will, after lunch, I'll tap out a bunch of um, lines that I've written just walking. I mean, in the pandemic, I don't know about you, but I've heard this from a lot of people, like the ability to walk. So first of all, gratitude that I have that ability. Yeah. Like my mom no longer does, but mm-hmm. and I think about that a lot, like, oh, my God, I'm on this planet, and these terrible things are happening, and this profound sense of gratitude about the little things, bread to eat, and to share, and the ability to walk, um, and to see my neighbors who call out to me and say hello. You know, we're masked, we're highly masked, highly vaxxed community here in Joyce Collingwood. Yeah. Profoundly grateful for that chain, the living chain of all the people who are allowing me to come to my table with my pen and paper, because that's how I compose, or on my phone. And and then thinking of all the the, the sides of that, like... When I'm done with this phone, where's it going to go? The cadmium and all the bad chemicals in it. Who's going to be recycling it? What child in what country is going to be on what rubbish heap forced to recycle when I'm done with my things? So the two things, you know, the good and the evil, they're always in us. They're always in a shadow dance. And how do we, how do we respond to Brahma's 
motto, let all evil die and the good endure. How will Bartholomew, he's the ultimate good man in book one, what will happen to him? Yeah. Maybe there's going to be so much climate change that consortium will collapse for a while. I think that's probably going to happen in book two. And Bartholomew the good will rise. Will he stay good? <laughs> it's, just, it's just fun to hear you almost write your, your next book here. Yeah, I'm talking to you. <laughs> um, there's such a reverence for, for words, for writing, and, and I've, I've known this uh, of you since our first conversation, almost eight years, nine years ago now, I think Which it was. Which was itself epic. Uh, you're very kind. Um, writing isn't easy. Um, uh, otherwise, everyone would be doing it. I'd be doing it if, if I thought it were easy um, or, I, uh, uh, or if I found it at all enjoyable. Now, people like you, yourself who are writers um, uh, know that. Um, so, so what sustains you in, in, in the difficult times when, when writing is not easy or it may be hard to come to? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like working on book two of this huge epic uh, there's lots of those days. You know, again, love, the love of a good man who is supporting me, that sustains me. Um, my own practice, self-love, self-compassion. It's okay to all the writers out there who are working on things, it's okay not to write every day. Sometimes you just can't. Some days are better than others. Compassion for ourselves and others. Movement. Sometimes you have to walk away from your practice. If it's stale or if it's a tyranny, I think William Blake famously said, you know, I have found my joy and when I hold it too tight, I destroy it. So finding balance, everyone finds it differently. Um, trying to get out of the self and maybe, you know, think about someone else, call someone, uh, find time to talk to your mom and um, come back to the practice. Just not give up on it, not step by step, word by word. Sometimes I'm looking at my composition book right now and there's a blank page, and I've got a load of trouble to figure out book two. And just somehow having faith and not giving up by just doing things step by step. Movement, I find, is essential. So, you know, after our conversation, I'm going to make a simple lunch, and I'm going to go for a walk. Then I'll come back to the page. The page will be here. The pencils and paper will be here. Are, are you... Um... Uh, at, at all uh, specific about the, the the objects that you use to to, to write with I mean, uh, certain paper, certain pens, even um, uh, you mentioned your phone a moment ago, a, a computer. I, I'm sure you use that as you write. Um, are, are they in specific places, even? I love these questions so much. Um, yes. Interestingly enough, I'm much less particular probably than I should be about my tech stuff. I have a love-hate relationship with my iPhone 12. I loved my rose gold iPhone 8. Uh-huh. It died, and that was a very sad time for me. I want um, Apple to bring back the home button. I can't stand these slippery <laughs> phones without a home button. I don't yeah. understand it. Um, I'm way less particular about tech and gadgets than I am about my simple, humble dollar store uh, composition book that I'm looking at right now with its um, retractable pencil. Um, my husband loves old-fashioned HB pencils that you sharpen, and I love retractable pencils. I'm obsessed with them. And my Sharpie pens. Um, a good Sharpie is hard to find, and there's nothing like a good Sharpie. And when they die, they're awful. So I'm very impatient. Like, as soon as my Sharpie pen dies, it's gone to recycling but um, I'm very very particular 
about notebooks. If they're too fancy, um, I can't write in them. They just shut me down if they're really beautiful. So I have friends who give me these beautiful writing books, and I use them for other things. Like I have this beautiful book um, given to me by the amazing poet Carrie Gilbert. Big shout-out to her who's up in Vernon teaching. She's just a beautiful writer in person, and she gives me these gorgeous books. I don't do my draft composition in them. I write out notes uh, whenever I do a reading and I do a list of poems because I write these big, long, book-length poems Every reading, usually, I create another sequence. And so I write out the sequence in, with my retractable pencil in this beautiful book. But when I'm running home, as I hopefully will do this afternoon, when some lines have come to me that I've spoken into my voice memo, and I run home to scratch them out by my retractable pencil into my dollar store notebook, it, it will be, you know, on this cheap, not very nice paper. And it sort of gives me permission to make mistakes and and to be imperfect, and to risk failure, uh, to be faithful enough to that practice. So, yeah, and I have um, all kinds of different notebooks. I have a notebook that goes in my carry-on bag. I have this composition notebook for the for the project that is Thought JBAP, The Heart of This Journey Bears All Patterns, of which Brahma and the Beggar Boy is book one. Um, and I have um, notebooks that, you know, I record readings, so... There's a whole thing. Yeah, you know, I was was looking around my desk here as we were talking. Um, I use a yellow legal pad to to write um, my notes out, Um, and I I don't know why. I think it's because it's yellow and and, uh, it's it's very thin. Uh, I I, I just uh, struck by what you said, that it gives you permission to to make mistakes or to, to use the whole page. And then I take that to my computer and then type up my notes. Uh, on it's a, it's a white piece of paper, and so I, I edit that way. And um, I, I, I'm looking at a stack of uh, notebooks that, that people have given me over the years that I don't use. <laughs> I love it because um, yeah, they just they, they seem like they you know I should write all my passwords in them or something like that. Yeah, you know? right. Because they they just don't seem like the places to put notes in. They seem like places to put something that's important or, or you know, phone numbers or, or something like that. Yeah. You know, and every writer, every creative will have their own thing. And learning to just love your own thing and honor it and not dismiss it. I picked you right now. You're so thoughtful and generous in your attention, your practice that you've been doing for so many years. You know I would love for you to take all those yellow notepads and, and, and do a book. Um, I can't wait for one day when you do your book. But um, those yellow notepads, I see you doing that, and that's your practice. And so we don't want to get too precious about it because that can act as a way, you know, writers and our monkey mind, we can then procrastinate. No, I don't have my pen, so I can't possibly. You, you want to probably not do that, but by any means necessary, you know, as been said, you, you want to get the work out and... You also want to love love your practice. It's 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 difficult. I find being brought up, you know, in a fairly strict family where it was about um, honoring and doing what was necessary and having a high degree of responsibility. Sometimes it's hard to just forgive and not be perfect, and and risk failure and risk things that might not work. I think that's such a big part of honoring your creative process and. Hey, it took me 10 years to get to book one. I've tried to really be a student of the epic, of the poetry forms I'm writing in. 
um, I do want to say a shout out to the local bookshops. Mm-hmm. You know, you were asked earlier about what has sustained you. Let me please put praise on our local bookshops, our local independent literary publishers, Minds Nightwood Editions, the local artists like Nadina Tandy, the local designers like Top Shelf Creative, 100% Indigenous owned Iron Dog Books, Inis Fan, Massey Books, um, Monroe's Books and Russell Books on the island in Victoria. Black Bond Books, BC owned and operated since the 1960s, and Book Warehouse that they own. Um, Upstarting Crow, I think they started in the pandemic down on Granville Island. I could name so many local books, but local bookshops. I hope people might feel motivated this holiday season to maybe give Brahman the Beggar Boy a shot. Please, if you're thinking of buying them, buy local. Yeah, yeah. That sustains us. Indeed, yeah. I, um... I uh, get some of my books from uh, Pulp Fiction. Yeah, great bookstore. Yeah, and um, I find that if I need something, um, they, they get it just as fast as the, the online chain does. Exactly. Give these books a chance, and these bookstores, they are phenomenal. Yeah. All the bookstores that you and I have mentioned, they have done magic. There's Western Sky and Coquitlam in keeping their supply chains open, being loyal to their customers, staying safe with their PHO practices. So that's a big sustenance. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you find writing about these big issues um, of our time, climate change, inequality, political issues, um, do you find that um, writing about them through poetry, as you do, um, through this book, for example, uh, do, do you find that... Um, I don't say easier is the right word, but, um, I mean, you could easily write, say, an op-ed or write a a book of nonfiction, um, other kinds of writing, if you will. Um, Is this the right way for you, I guess? It's the only way, and if I may, I think when we talk about poetry, we we go one step away from it. I'm going to read you fragments of... um, the very first poem the reader encounters in Brahman the Beggar Boy, and then I'll read some fragments from a lovely little poem where Grandmother and, and the Beggar Boy and Brahma are, are up to some things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Brahma's like a Robin Hood, right? She, yeah. she takes on contract work as a locksmith with the evil consortium, and then she cheats on them and helps other people. So here's a little bit from the first sonnet that greets the reader. That gate, the oracle, her icy breath. Beware increments that gather apace, equinox and solstice shifting in place. O precession and ecliptic, our earth on our axes tilted and turned, pushed off course by our actions. Her perfect ratio precision, 23.5 and turn. You berries misshapen, birds drop and fall. Vast is our future. All gone. And then, here's a little poem, just reading a bit of it, from, Mm -hmm. um, you know, this scenario of the grandmother and Brahma and the beggar boy. Grandmother's instruction. Later, past midnight, around the campfire, Brahma's grandmother calls everyone in, closer to the flames. The beggar boy sits. His hands pull on that packet of letters. His fingers do the reading. He can't read. 
even his lips move, not ever, him silent as the night. So... Well, we, we have to sit in silence, Renee, because um, it, it, uh, I, I read the book the, the way I have, probably uh, quickly, just to, to finish it. Yeah. But but then to hear to, to hear the author read it the way that they wrote it, um, I think is something that that um, I don't know. I, I, I thank you for doing that because it it um, I remember reading um, the first poem certainly, um, and. I didn't read it the way that you read it, and so to, to get it the way that you meant it to, to I, I got different things out of it from my yeah. reading and from hearing you, so I, I appreciate that. Oh, well, thanks for the time to do it. And, you know, it's written for the page. It's written for you, the reader. Um, I stay true to my vision. Like, there, there, there's this great conversation among, you know, serious, particularly postmodernist or, you know, language poets, or which I, I till that ground and I'm, entranced by it and and it's there's this tension right between do you care about the reader we're often asked this and i think the pandemic more than anything made me care deeply about the reader because i think there's a fashionable sort of nihilism amongst serious and talented and um esoteric expressionist neo-expressionist neo-modernist poets right where we don't care about <laughs> the poet uh, the reader and that that the, the pandemic and catastrophe kind of pushed me away from that. Yeah. Um, the That first poem is a sonnet. It's a rhymed sonnet. So I am tilling the ground and paying homage to all the guys before me, the great ones, and I'm kind of claiming it for myself and the reader. And that lovely little poem is blank verse where you see the scene developing, but it's all in verse between Grandma and this beggar boy who can't read, but he's so entranced with these letters that have been found in the secret oak box that they've stolen from the consortium in the abandoned farmhouse that he's, he's tracing, he's touching every stroke of writing that they find in these letters. Yeah, it, it, it's a marvelous reverence that I see in the, in the book that um, I think... Um infuses it and, and I, I think it makes it all the more special that when when you create your own writing uh, especially to read um, just, uh, just what an enjoyable uh, experience it is to read um, I could talk all after uh, all morning with you and, you know <laughs> um, one last question if, if, I, if I might um, th- this process of writing this, this, this book in, in, in particular Brahma and the Beggar Boy the first of, of a series um, has that yielded any personal insight about yourself? I mean, I'm sure you've gained some wisdom or some clarity about yourself in the process of writing it. Is there something that you know now that you didn't know before, say? My goodness, that's an amazing question. I think what, I don't know that I know it, but my sense of wanting to always be a beginner and always learning has deepened. What I didn't realize was how much I had absorbed of everything that's come before me, how porous I am to culture and to what's going on. I had no idea all of this was in me, just no idea. It was like I started writing it 10 years ago, and I just you know, stayed open to the poetry, stayed open to the poetry. I published little chapbooks from this series, 
and it was just about the language. It was just about um, creating rhyme, working to learn how to do these epic forms, staying true, reveling and delighting in it. The pandemic acted as a an anvil, a pivot, a fulcrum, a fire, you know, alone a lot, alone a lot. And some people have talked about how the pandemic, and I totally get this, has turn them off like they can't create they, mm-hmm. and, and they have feel guilt and they they're they're anxious because they haven't been able to write for me the pandemic was the opposite it allowed me to go so deep and it, it acted like a, a spigot where i turned the tap and all of this came out of me and certainly that was a big learning moment um it also brought me to confront these big big questions I think I didn't know that was in me too about about the motto let all evil die and the good endure what is evil and what is the good I didn't realize that I was contemplating that in the way that I seem to be in this book and that we'll see what I do with the series Renee um, it, it, it's a, a pleasure to speak with you again and I look forward to, to the next time and hopefully it'll be in person next time um, doesn't have to be an interview. You can just grab, grab a coffee or something like that. I, I always appreciate your time, and, and uh, as I told you already, I enjoyed reading Brahma and the Beggar Boy. It gave me a lot to think about, a lot of things that I didn't want to think about even, yeah. um, but need to. Um, so I, I appreciate uh, our chat today and, and this book. Congratulations and continue good luck with, with, with it and everything else. And thank you. What an honor, privilege, and absolute pleasure to start up the conversation again, Joe, and I look forward to listening, and I wish you all the best. Huge gratitude to you for the work you do for writers and readers. The book is called Brahma and the Beggar Boy. It's published by Nightwood Editions. Its author, Renee Saklikar, joined me on the line from here in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Planta.